once was speaking to a racially diverse church and I asked them uh, to raise their hands if they felt comfortable culturally every Sunday coming to church and never had a time where they felt weird or sort of like an other or out of the norm or anything like that. And it was interesting because about half of the church uh, raised their hand that they felt comfortable every Sunday and the other half sat there looking at me uh, knowing that they quite often felt uncomfortable. So what causes that difference? Well, it's often the difference between the dominant and non-dominant culture. And we're going to continue that conversation today on the All Things to All People podcast. Let's do it. Welcome to the All Things to All People podcast. This is Michael Burns, and we're continuing our talk on dominant and non-dominant cultures. And uh, once again, we are in uh, luck because we have my wife, Mycretia, and James and Jennifer Becknell joining us from Chicago. Uh, really excited and, and pleased to have them. And uh, just as last time, I could spend a lot of time introducing them and giving them, uh, you know, all, giving you all the background. And, and they're an amazing couple in the ministry. James is one of the most, I think, admired and respected teachers globally in our family of churches. Uh, but I won't say uh, any more other than if you want to know more about them, just Google. Google it, Chuck. Google it. Um <laughs> <laughs> James is saying, "Don't Google him. Uh, please don't do that." Uh, but no, it's uh, it's it's really good to have you guys uh, again. Um, and we're gonna we're gonna jump back in. Are, are you with me? Can you uh, can you guys hear me? We're here. Okay, there we go. There we're we ready. Go. You're ready. How uh, how is life in Chicago today? Pretty good. Pretty nice. It's like 65 degrees. All right. The sun is shining. Wow, it is raining and miserable here. So uh, and enjoy right. that. Um, hopefully, uh, maybe your uh, baby, uh, Bailey, the dog, will make an appearance uh, at some point in the episode. Uh, I know last time when we were recording, I saw her hop up on uh, Jen's lap for a minute. Uh, <laughs> um, that is a spoiled dog, Jennifer. Uh, but neither here. I can't say much because my wife spoils our dogs. So um, I'm going to jump in and do a little bit of reading here. Um, and then, uh, just like we did last time, uh, ask you guys uh, a couple questions. And I mostly want to hear from you today. So let me jump in and read here. When my wife and I began dating, we met one another's families and began to spend time together with each group. Now, this is dangerous, James and Jennifer, because I'm reading this. And as you know, my wife is sitting right next to me. So we'll see how this goes for me. As we prepared to get married, we had to navigate the ritual that most young married couples do, deciding how we would split up special times like holidays between our groups of relatives. 
It didn't take me long to discover that my wife was better at it than I was. She would come in, sit down, fit right into the conversation with my parents and other family members, and be at ease. That doesn't mean that she understood everything about the culture of my group. Far from it. But since she and I are both from the USA, there was much that we all had in common. Since we were both raised in Wisconsin, that was another layer we shared. But we were from very different socioeconomic groups. She cut her teeth in the inner city and lived in mostly black neighborhoods her whole life, while I came from a small, largely white city surrounded by rural living. As a member of the non-dominant culture in our society, she was better at understanding the basics of my culture and certainly wasn't offended by it. I can't say the same for myself. I was very accepting of her family and had no prominent racial prejudices that I was aware of at the time, although we all have prejudices. But I also had a very shallow knowledge of the inner workings of her cultural group. Due to my ignorance, a lot of the things her relatives considered normal drove me absolutely crazy. I was constantly upset and feeling offended by their behavior. To make matters worse, I felt endlessly awkward around them and didn't know how to engage well in the conversation they had with each other. This is characteristic of the dominant culture effect, because the dominant group is less familiar with the basics of non-dominant groups. They are more easily upset, offended, or threatened by the behavior and culture of the non-dominant group and can act in very intolerant ways toward them. That doesn't mean that members of the non-dominant group are saintly and have no flaws, nor does it mean that the dominant group members are inherently the bad guys. Non-dominant group members can be just as unaware or intolerant of other non-dominant cultures, and there are always exceptions. There are dominant group people who have become incredibly adept in other cultures, and there are non-dominant group members who could not operate in or understand the dominant group to save their life. But in general, the people in the dominant group struggle more. Let me give an example from church life to demonstrate this. I've been to countries outside the United States that had a small group of English-speaking North Americans living there. And while they were doing their best to fit in and be part of the congregation, they were very quick to cluster up, group together, and spend much time with each other outside of church. Now that makes some sense. They could understand each other better and got where each other was coming from. There's an ease with those who share your culture and first language that is magnetic. Yet if we traveled back to the U.S. and were to find a group of Spanish-speaking people grouping together apart from the others, it would not be long before someone was concerned about this and upset that people were banding together. I've heard complaints from white Christians about black members grouping together because when that happened, the white members didn't feel welcomed or comfortable. I've never heard a black disciple make the same complaint. Again, there may be exceptions to these examples, but I'm speaking in general terms here of the most likely scenario. Dominant groups tend to be more threatened by the non-dominant culture. Our fictional couple, if you remember them from the last episode, Johannes and Rachel, were having dif different experiences in their marriage and the life they were creating together. Rachel didn't fully realize it, but her preferences had become the dominant culture in their household. It never occurred to her that everything went her way and that she was able to set up permanent residence in her comfort zone. For Johannes, it was a different world. 
He didn't mind at first doing things differently, but that started to wear on him as time passed. When he noticed that nearly everything was dictated by Rachel's cultural preferences, the tension began to build for him exponentially. He struggled with the unfairness of the situation and grew increasingly frustrated that he was always the one who was bending, adapting, and changing. She was always in her comfort zone. He hasn't. He hadn't visited his for a long time, and Rachel had no idea. For her, things were great. For Johannes, the dissatisfaction was mounting. When different groups make up multicultural, make up a multicultural community. It is commonplace that they differ in the way they experience the group and perceive how well things are going. That can be true with groups as small as two people. Have you ever sat down with a married couple and asked them how things are going? The husband blurts out that things are great, and he's excited about how they're growing in their relationship. But then, before you can fully turn to the wife and repeat the question, she bursts into tears. There are two different ride they're on two different rides and each will continue to be unaware of the experience of the other without some honest and straightforward communication discontent and miscommunication will happen in communities differences of opinion are a sure thing conflict will be present count on it those are not signs of disaster when we find them in a community some work needs to be done but we need not panic what is a problem is the unawareness factor. When problems are known, we can work on them. When only part of the community sees the problem, but the dominant group does not, that is a recipe for bad things to happen. Let's say you have a non-dominant group in a church community that is routinely marginalized. The dominant group loves to have them present and, in theory, loves the diversity they bring, but they make no effort to understand or grow in their awareness of cultural inclusion and the self-adaptation that is necessary for true cultural diversity to exist. The non-dominant group will eventually grow tired of always being the ones to adapt and sacrifice. They will take notice that the dominant group is always in their comfort zone and that the dominant group will usually throw a fit if the church does some things differently to allow for the cultural expressions of the non-dominant groups. This will consistently lead to two things. First, the dominant group will remain silent for a time, but will quietly grow in their discontent and impatience. Second, the dominant group will grow increasingly out of touch. They believe everything is fine because the community has become a haven for their cultural preferences, and they're oblivious to the fact that many members of the community are feeling disaffected. A gap is widening, and the dominant group has no idea. We'll stop there for a little bit. James, Jennifer, Micrisha, I want to um, ask you all, um, in considering, you know, last time we had a great conversation and in, in, uh, throughout the episode, and at the end I asked uh, what uh, you would maybe say in address to a member of the non-dominant group. Um, and Jennifer gave some great advice for that. But I want to I want to kind of kick off this episode and ask you guys, uh, what would you say or want your brothers and sisters in the dominant group to know about this dynamic and your experience and the feelings of uh, maybe brothers and sisters that are um, experiencing things from a, a different angle than they are? 
Um, well, I think the first thing is uh, for the dominant group that I would just say to consider is that by virtue of being a member of the dominant group, you have a blind spot. And that is no indictment on, you know, the character of the people in the dominant group. It's just the reality, you know. Um, so there's a blind spot to the cultural the cultural needs um, of non-dominant groups. It's just not something that members of the dominant group are attuned to. And because of that, I think it's important for members of the dominant group to really embrace that they have a built-in blind spot. And the same way that you, when you're driving, you have a blind spot, you take advantage of tools that are provided to help you to overcome that blind spot. You know, whether it be a backup camera or your side mirrors or just turning around to take a look. But there's ways to compensate for the blind spot, but you have to recognize that it exists. Hmm. And I think that's the first step is to not assume, hey, for, for members of the dominant group to not assume, oh, I'm culturally aware. I, I know what's going on. That might be true to an extent, but but there's all that blind spot is always going to exist. And the more you embrace that, the greater lens you will go to to really try to, to compensate for the fact that that blind spot is there. Hmm. Yeah, that's great. I, I totally uh, agree with everything Jen just said. And I think the thing that I, I think it's, it's interesting because you, you don't, you don't, like I think Jennifer said in the last episode, you don't know what you don't know. And if, mm -hmm. if, the, if the dominant group can just say, you know what, I, I, there's stuff I don't know. I'm not, I'm not aware. If, if that begins, if I was to say, what can I say to, it's kind of weird, it sounds weird, what could I say to my, my dumb, just say, uh, embrace, embrace that, uh, just agreeing with what, with what Jennifer's saying, just embrace that and, and own that and, and, and believe it is true. I think that's the, the, the easiest first step is just being able to be humble about not being aware of that blind spot and then they can go from there you can you know there's a lot of different directions you can take you can open up conversations you can ask people um you know i think sometimes because we have a diverse group we can assume that we know more than we do it can maybe lead to a little bit of pride like you know it's kind of like if you have one friend from a non-dominant culture you know um you 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 know what i'm talking about it's like i have a i have a i have a black friend um i did say it i did say it it's now recorded on internet um it, it's like oh you know if somebody from a non-dominant culture you know if you're an african-american and somebody says to you oh i have a friend who's this oh it's it's a it's a bad feeling. Right. Um, it's it, James. It's a, it's a little like a guy saying that they can't be guilty of sexism because they have a wife. Hello. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, again, I appreciate the, 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 the spirit of that. Like I have, I, it's almost, it is the, an attempt to, to, to connect with, with people from, you know, non-dominant cultures, but 
it's better to say something like, you know, tell me more about your experience as a as an African American. You know, like within in the church, what what is it like for you? You know, to just start an open conversation about it from the not from a point of knowledge, but from a point of humility and like I really just don't understand. Help me, help me understand. That's good. If, if I could just jump in real quick, I think adding to that, um, you know, is this thing of for for members of the dominant culture to really understand that bridging the differences between the cultures is not a one-time event. You know what I mean? Mm. It is an ongoing endeavor that requires attention. Like a marriage, like any kind of relationship, it's not a one and done. You know, one seminar from Michael Burns talking about cultural diversity is not going to get the job done. And I think that is sometimes, you know, members of the dominant will be like, well, we did this. And you know, kind of it's the assumption that that should just handle the need. And uh, I know James and I were talking the other day in response to a, a, a lesson that Reese Neeling gave about our brothers and sisters in third world nations, you know, who are struggling day to day to know where their next meal is going to come from. Come, come from. And right. we were praying about it. And I really said, you know, it's so easy for me in that moment to really respond and want to do something. But as soon as that was over, I can go to my fridge and get a steak or whatever's in the freezer and forget about the fact that their reality is not my reality. You know, I yeah. can step in and out of being in touch with that need, but they can't. And that the, the same is true of dominant and non-dominant culture. You know, members of the dominant culture can, can tap into the needs of the non-dominant culture but they don't live in that reality. So it's easy to lose touch with the fact that they are ongoing. So that's mine. That's really yeah. good. That's really helpful. And and I think I heard, Jen, that if we come over for supper tonight, you're going to make steak. Uh, was, that, <laughs> was that a correct? I heard that's totally what I was saying. Yes. If, <laughs> I was just, if, if we totally talking. weren't under a shelter-in-place order, uh, <laughs> we, would, we would be there. James, what were you going to say? I was just thinking. I was as she was talking. I was thinking for somebody from a non, from a dominant culture, it, it's got to feel like, man, this is a lot of work. Sure. You know, like wow, this is. Ooh, I don't. You know, it just seems like it. It feels like it would be from there. I'm just assuming. I, I I can't speak for somebody from that perspective, but it, in the way that we're talking, I can imagine it would it would feel like this. This is going to require a lot of focused effort from me. Absolutely. And the way the way I would characterize that, James, that's a really great point you bring up, is um, I, I think you find a great analogy with uh, exercise and the human body. You know, somebody um, that constantly works a muscle or muscle group uh, can become very strong in, in it, you know, and uh, you know, I do, for example, I do a specific kind of exercise that I like doing that's, you know, I, I run some, but then I do this uh, high intensity interval training on days when I don't run. And my son is a, a very uh, excellent elite athlete, you know, basketball player um, in high school. He plans to play in college. But uh, during this time of COVID exile, he can't get into 
his school weight room and, you know, the YMCA and stuff. And so uh, he started to work out with me. And so I, I recently put him through a pretty intense workout. And uh, actually yesterday we did one and it's, it's using muscles he's never used or in that way, I should say, you know, in a different way. And so I woke up this morning and I was like, how are you feeling? And he goes, sore. And it's because he's not used uh, those muscles. Now, I, you know, I can do the same workout, but I'm used to it. And so with the don, dominant group, um, you know, never has to flex that muscle of cultural humility or adaptation. So they don't even know it's there oftentimes. Uh, where non-dominant groups use it all the time. And, you know, they're in pretty good shape. And so, like anything, you know, when somebody is not in good shape, they do just a little bit and they start to holler and feel pain and, and you know, squeal about it. Um, and it's the same way with the dominant culture. It's not that they're bad people. It's not that they um, don't have just as good hearts. It's that they're suddenly being asked to be aware of and work muscles uh, that they never have before. Um, yeah. Mike, Krisha, what is, what is your thought on this? What would you want to say to uh, brothers and sisters uh, that you would want them to know from the dominant culture? Um, I think what I would say is um, probably for the most of us that come from um, a non-dominant culture is there is um, probably more of um, an experience of um, of familial community um, and within that community like every single person has um, equal value um, and what I'm not saying is that you know people from non-dominant cultures don't value other people but what I am saying is when you come into a community where you're met with um, uh, questions or, or how would you say society at large you're daily met with questions of equality like or value or worth or whatever, and then you come into your um, church community, and um, I know with my upbringing, when when you go, when we went to church, the experience was you're coming almost home to your family. Like you, you, you st literally, we would be in service together in some way, shape, or form, and eat together. So for about maybe six to seven hours in a day, we were together with our um, church community, and you know. I mean, sometimes probably as as a child, I probably didn't appreciate that as much as I do appreciate the fellowship and the connectivity now. But I think what that reminds me of is just the value of being together, as well as um, the sense of camaraderie and the unity and the almost and, and the reality that we are a family um, that comes excuse me, um, from having that background and upbringing. So, you know, when I think about different events or like even on a, a typical Sunday, you know, um, there are times where I'm tired, but at the same time, because um, of the opportunity to be together and the fact that I value that, it doesn't seem tiresome, if that makes sense. It almost gives fuel versus um, taking away. And I think um, just in terms of like, whether it be, um, not necessarily just events, but I think what I would want um, my brothers and sisters to know is number one, you know, when I say brother and sister, I mean it like wholeheartedly, um, you know, and in our, my family, the family that I grew up in, you say what you need to say um, and um, 
you know, there might be hurts that come from it or whatever, but then tomorrow or even later that day, it's as if there's nothing there or that, that nothing ever happened. So um, I think just I, I want to be able to feel like I'm coming home when I come to service or, you know, when I'm coming to your house or when you're coming to my home, you know, um, and I think that, yes, there does need to be consideration for what each other needs. But when there's a, a perpetual bend that that I always have to bend, for example, I am not a texter. I don't feel loved when people text me about what's going on in your family. But if somebody picks up the phone and says, hey, girl, how's your mom doing? Or how your mama doing? Or, you know, there it is right there. I just switched it up. But how is, you know, how is your family? To me, that feels loved. To somebody else, it may not mean that much, but it means that you thought enough, you felt like, or, or it may be inconveniencing me for time to have to spend this much time, but what's going on in your life really matters. So if you text me and say, how's your family doing? Mm-hmm. I might be feeling some type of way. <laughs> and I know that your heart is to really just to 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 really show concern, but that consideration for individuality and uniqueness and, you know, like this is really important to you, like in, in that way, in that area, that's how it's expressed to me. It may seem like a little thing, but in the world of busyness where like everybody loves everybody and loves everything, that speaks to me. So part of, um, I think what James was saying and asking people specifically, um, it, it really helps that I'm not just another, like, one of the non-dominant, a person, like, how would you say? There's a, an individual concern and um, that I would get from a com- from somebody in my, in, in my uh, I wouldn't even say in my own family because my brothers and sisters are from my own family, but you get what I'm saying. There's a sense of, um, of, uh, of intimacy that's there. Um, and it goes beyond like whether or not we're sitting in the church pews or, you know, the building, which is really not the church. And we all know that. Sure. Uh, thank you, guys. And um, let me just say for the record, um, I do feel loved when people text me. Um, I, I, <laughs> I, so do you, James? Yeah. Yeah. I. Uh, that's my love language. Um yeah, as a, as an introvert, I love uh, getting texts. Uh, in fact, I I have to wrestle through it. Somebody just calls me. I'm kind of like like, what are they a maniac? Like you know, like text me. Wow. Um, no, I I you know I don't mind, but I I I love being texted. Um, yeah. So um, now let let me let me throw this out there. Um, I don't very often feel culturally uncomfortable uh, at, at my own church or a lot of the churches in the United States. I have been to churches um, where uh, I have felt that way to a degree. And it doesn't mean it's bad. It's just you don't necessarily know the cultural cues and you know you have to think through things and it can be a little tiring and stressful. Um, I think of uh, you know, I remember James, you and I kind of, I think, experienced that in, uh, was it Nazareth when we went to the church there and, you know, it was a lot of, uh, Russian and Ukrainian, 
uh, Jews who had moved to Israel. Just a very different cultural environment. And uh, of course, many places in Africa that I've been. But um, so I don't feel that very often in the U.S. But, uh, you know, one of the very strong elements of my, I think, familial culture growing up was sarcasm. Um, that was our, our sense of humor is rooted in being sarcastic. Uh, that's the way we talked and understood each other. And, you know, my Christian and I have had to work through that um, over the years because she didn't really grow up with a lot of sarcasm, doesn't necessarily process it in the same way that I mean it or get, you know, the, the sarcasm. Um, and so when I'm in the church culture, I have to be really careful with that because, you know, it's not always fitting for a church context. And every now and then I'll, you know, when I find brothers and sisters who are of one heart and mind and we can be sarcastic with each other, I'm kind of drawn to them. It's like, hey, let's go in the corner and be sarcastic together. Um, you know, and you, you know what I mean? But I, and so there's a bit of a, a struggle sometimes that I can't uh, be that way uh, at, at church. And I feel like I can't be myself um, and, and be here because it's just not, you know, going to strike the right tone sometimes or be appropriate. So it's, I simply use that as an illustration to say, uh, you know, as, as uh, you know, members of our faith community, what has been maybe the biggest struggle for you all in identifying in some aspects with non-dominant culture groups? Um, what's been the, the biggest personal struggle for you where you're like, you know, I can't, th this is part of who I am. And I, it's hard, you know, like my Krisha, you were kind of mentioning some of that, but it's, it's almost a morning uh, you know, that you have to go through like, man, I, it, this has been a struggle for me, or I can't really bring this aspect um, to church all the time. I have to be careful about it because it will be misunderstood or uh, what have you. So is there, is there anything like that that anyone wants to share about? I'm so tempted to be sarcastic right now. Ah, you'd be speaking my love language, James. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh. No. Yeah. Um, I was going to say my belief in aliens. Um, I can't share that with, with, uh, well, that's, that's <laughs> just truth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I want to believe in aliens. Anyways, that's a whole other podcast. I, right. for the record, I didn't say I do. I just said I wanted to. Right. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know. I can't think of anything um, right off the, the, the top of my head right now. I don't know if you guys have anything that you mourn the loss of. I can't really think of anything. I mean, um, I, I mean, I think more what's brought to my attention are other people that are in my uh, non-dominant groups they will bring their concerns and their experiences to my attention. Sure. Well, maybe you can and, give us an example or two from that. Well, I think something even as simple as representation from the pulpit, you know, in terms of speakers um, and uh, people that get asked to, to share, uh, people that are um, 
you know, raised up in terms of leaders. It's sometimes that can tend to be a very small group of people and that, that lacks diversity, something even as, as simple as who, who are the part singers that are being brought up and is there diversity there? Is there diversity represented not only in the part singers, but in the types of music that is being, you know, performed. And so those are the kinds of things that routinely get uh, brought up. I think um, even just, you know, holidays that are celebrated that are like national holidays that don't get recognized or, or um, you know, events, news events that, that don't get prayed about, like just social justice type stuff. And obviously this, you know, our churches, the tradition of our church is not heavy on the social just, justice tip or front. So I don't expect that that's going to be a huge paradigm shift, but those are definitely things that kind of routinely get brought to my attention, James's attention, um, that uh, I think are, you know, differences in between dominant and non-dominant cultures that are affect the non-dominant culture quite a bit. Yeah, that's, that's good. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I know recently, I'm, I'm going to tell a story of my wife here. She went to a, a funeral, I believe, um, and it was in a, a predominantly African-American church and, and very definitely African-American culture. And it was uh, of a friend, uh, a really good friend. And so she went to the, 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 it wasn't a funeral of her friend. It was a family member of her friend. And uh, she came back with a recording of the sermon at the funeral. And she was like, you know, basically like, oh, you got to listen to this this is good preaching right here, you know, and, uh, it's very different, um, than, you know, what you would normally, I think here in, uh, one of, uh, the churches in our fellowship, uh, or what have you. And, but there's, there's a truth in the fact that like, I, I've even put in the last couple of years, a, a fair amount of work at studying, um, I, I think in a very respectful way, preaching styles and, uh, theological emphases from other cultural backgrounds than just the one I grew up in and how to, you know, incorporate aspects of that preaching element. And so, um, because it's not natural to me, it doesn't just come out. I have to kind of plan it. Um, but I have several times in the last year, uh, I will think, okay, this section here or this sermon here, I'm going to go to maybe, uh, for example, maybe a more African-American uh, cultural style of preaching. And I never announce, of course, that I'm doing that. Uh, but whenever I do, um, it obviously resonates because uh, I will get an, a very high percentage of African-Americans will come up without, you know, realizing it, just go, that was a great sermon. Like that really hit what I needed and it connected and, you know, and, and so it, it just goes to show that if we're not, I think, being aware of those cultural differences, um, we're not ever, uh, you, you know, maybe we're missing something, right? And I, I think of, you know, just as uh, someone who grew up in a very traditional mm-hmm. white Christian background might hear uh, a sermon from a very African-American cultural background and, and think, 
boy, I didn't get a lot out of that sermon. Doesn't mean the sermon wasn't true. Doesn't mean necessarily that it wasn't right. It just means that culturally, uh, they didn't. Uh, it didn't connect. It didn't hit the spot. And and so, as a member of the dominant culture, I have to be aware that that may be a struggle for people as they listen to our style of sermons. That it's it's a style and not the style. I think you alluded to that idea, Jen. You know of a culture versus the culture. Um, anybody want to add to that? That's like the worst question possible, by the way, is anybody want to add to that? But <laughs> no, <laughs> no, but I, I, uh, I appreciate the, the focused effort to deliberately engage in that, that that's great advertising for uh, a theological education. Because if you study preaching in seminary, homiletics, they're going to teach you about all the different styles of preaching uh, and teaching, uh, pulpit, pulpit preaching. So that, that in and of itself, just educating yourself about those different styles, being aware that there are different styles, um, and understand, embracing the, 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 the richness that can come from a different style of, of presentation how it can even edify people of all cultures, you know, embracing a different style for the sake of the non-dominant culture is going to encourage them. But it can also be an education to people who are, are from the dominant culture as well. Um, so, yeah, I think that's in and of itself that just taking a bird's eye view of what you said and thinking about the value of, of just Theological education and awareness of those styles is is huge. And if our if our preachers and teachers in, in uh, our family of churches can engage with that, I think that's gonna that's going to benefit us uh, overall. That's good, man. Well, let me um, let me read the last couple pages of this chapter, and then if you guys have any final thoughts before we conclude. Um, I have made the decision. You, what you guys are talking about was so fascinating. We just skipped right through the intermission break in this episode, and we're going to uh, finish out here. Uh, but let me read this closing section. An important starting place for churches that want to develop cultural competency is to identify clearly what the dominant culture is in their group. Simply put, a dominant culture is the group whose members are in the majority, or in some cases who hold more power or influence than the other groups present. Because culture is a multi-layered phenomenon, there can be several ways of identifying the dominant culture. It can depend on what angle you are approaching the question from, but there's typically an element that is the most influential within the society that can serve as the primary cultural focus. If you are in Israel, ethnicity and nationality might be the most powerful factors in cultural divides. Is your church culturally dominated by Palestinians, Israelis, Jewish Ukrainians, Jewish Russians, or some other group? In many places in Africa, the question might focus on tribal culture. If you are in Nigeria, is the dominant culture tribal culture Yoruba, Ibu, Hausa, Fulani, or something else? In the United States, race is often the most prevalent factor, although sometimes it can be ethnic or national origins. Is your church culture predominantly a white, black, Latino, Caribbean, or Asian culture? We don't seek these answers to divide or engage in some sort of political identity game. 
Quite the opposite. These divisions are already there in our behavior, expressions, and preferences. If we ignore them or act like culture is not a powerful force, the divisions will be glossed over for a time, but will eventually take root and become a problem. To be all things to all people means that we must be familiar with our own culture and cognizant of how we can make others feel welcomed and included. Being all things to all means that we purposely reject the advantage of a dominant culture and embrace all expressions. This is not about equal representation by the numbers. It is about the mission to gather the nations. What's the best way to tell what the dominant culture in your group is? I think there are four simple things we can do to help identify which one is predominant. First, ask what is the majority group in your church. Is there an easily identifiable segment of society that is represented in greater numbers than any others? Second, look at the leadership. Is there a majority of one cultural group in leadership or that dominates key leadership positions? Third, ask minority members of your community what they think the dominant culture in your church is. Fourth, compare your church with churches that are comprised of only one race, ethnicity, nationality, or culture. Is there one whose culture most clearly compares to yours? What I mean by that is, does your church life look similar to a white church, a black church, a Latino church, or some other church that has primarily or exclusively one group? If I look at my own church through these four lenses, the answer becomes clear as to the dominant culture. The majority in our church consists of white people of U.S. origin. I will say it's not a huge majority in our church, but it is the majority. Although we are striving to be more diverse in our leadership, most of the leaders are from this background. When we ask groups that are not in the majority by population, they are clear that in their experience, the predominant culture is white and American. And when we look at nearby monocultural churches, culturally speaking, we look most like a white evangelical suburban middle-class church, even though ethnically we are diverse. This means that if we do nothing in the area of cultural competency and inclusion, our church will continue to be dominated by a white American culture. Without realizing it, we will be as influenced by those aspects of identity as we are as we are the Bible in terms of our expression, our communication, our assumptions, our worship styles, and so on. Here is where this becomes of vital importance. History shows that if multiracial churches don't pay attention to cultural competence, they will eventually devolve to being almost exclusively populated by the dominant culture. The others will grow weary and eventually leave. Thus, if we ignore the need to be all things to all people, we will cease to be what God has called us to be. Uh, do you guys, what's your response, or maybe I'll give a chance here for everybody to share a final thought or word. It's not like this has to be the last thing you say. If someone else says something and it sparks a thought, feel free to jump in. Uh, but what are your final thoughts on this topic? I think one of the, oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. One of the thoughts that I have is, um, is, you know, and I'll just speak for like Minnesota, I'm sure like in a lot of other, like, uh, what would you say more urban, um, or heavily populated areas, 
you have um, subgroups or um, different um, groups of non-dominant, um, you know, groups or cultures. And so the thing that I think about, you know, when um, Jesus talks about, you know, bringing together people of all nations um, and the responsibility of Christians um, at large to do that, um, it really gives us an opportunity to think, wow, how how does my position, disposition, or tendency to view or be um, or to, to exercise or to examine my own um, humility and when it comes to culture influence my uh, my reach or my ability to reach others. I think about, you know, we have um, in our community um, a lot of people from Hmong background, from um, Somali background, you know, African, which is different than African-American, like culturally there is difference there. How do we reach these communities where a lot of the um, the things that, that are non-dominant um, culture can kind of be abrasive to or, or dismissive of? It comes across and it feels very dismissive. While unintentional, I think we do have to really consider that if we are going to live out the gospel. And some people say, well, why are we talking about this? Well, that's why, um, why we're talking about it. So I would say, you know, each person has to, we could say like what the church needs to do or what, you know, the leadership needs to do or whatever, but each one of us have to um, have to stop and examine ourselves, both dominant and non-dominant um, parts of our family have to examine ourselves and say, who do I need to be or how do I need to be different? Maybe like Jen spoke about last segment, it's being patient and long suffering, you know, like this, we're, we're going to be family. We're going to be pursuing, you know, God's dream and vision in this until the end. So what does that look like for me this week or today, you know, to persevere in patience and, you know, trial and suffering, maybe to explain it again, you know, um, questions can be a huge thing for me, but to explain it again and again and again, and be willing to, um, to show people like how I, how I, I, um, feel loved or, you know, we as a, um, as different parts of non, or I'm sorry, as different non-dominant groups, um, feel loved and feel supported and feel included. And then the other part to that, um, I would say is, and and this took me a while, <clears throat> excuse me, to really grasp. If God is asking me as an individual person, um, regardless of culture, to do something like to 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 fill my fulfill my role in the body, who then do I need to ask permission to do that? I don't need to ask anybody permission to do that. So how do I do what God is asking me to do? And this is me saying just as a general question from anybody without, um, and it may feel different. It may feel uncomfortable, you know, for some, for me to do my part um, in as much as the spirit is prompting me and it brings glory to God. So that's more of just an ending question, I guess I have. Um, is there space for people to take on their part without, um, yeah, somebody feeling necessarily offended by it. Good. James, Jennifer? Yeah, thanks, Mike Krish. I, I really appreciate what you were sharing. I, I, I think about how some of the things you were talking about, being reflective, being, you know, each person, whether you're dominant or non-dominant, being reflective and really imagining 
people from every walk of life what it takes to for them to engage in the community that we're, we're a part of. So I think you're right. If, if you were to invite a certain subgroup or a, another kind of non-dominant culture into our, our fellowship that isn't represented, how would they feel? What would their experience be? And I think sometimes there's, there's natural filters built in culturally to our community that will, it's not, we don't do it on purpose, but what will happen is by, by just the nature of the way that we are gathered, certain people will, will walk in and just be repelled. Uh, they'll just, they'll walk in and they'll, they'll, they'll walk through the front door and something will happen. They'll feel something, they'll experience something. They'll go through something that will make them just hit a invisible wall and, and then leave and never come back. And we might invite them. We might invite them for a Bible study. We might invite them for a dinner. We might, we might keep the overtures of, of like wanting to in, include them going. But long ago, just based on a very quick assessment of the situation, they've decided this is clearly not a community that I'm, I'm welcome to be a part of. Um, while we might be feeling, oh, we love you and we, we really wanted, we've done everything. We pulled out the red carpet for you. But they're feeling like, mm, no, this, is, wow. this, is, this isn't for me. This is not for me. Yeah. And um, without like real intentional like self-reflection and awareness, we just won't be able to discern what those invisible barriers are uh, to, to, our, uh, to people coming to our community. It's powerful. I think after that, it, it that self-reflection piece is is huge. But I think if you really do reflect, it's going to lead you back to at least in part to the that the presence of that blind spot and the fact that we need outside help and assistance to overcome that. You know, and I think it's as simple as just saying, "Hey, let me invite people from." you know, members or people from members from the non-dominant community that I'm trying to connect with to, you know, bend my ear to help me to have insight that I would never possess naturally as a member of the dominant culture. And that, that goes back to what I was saying about this can't be just a one time or two time thing. It has to be an ongoing part of you know, your leadership and how you approach, as I'm saying from a minister standpoint, approach ministry. Um, and it's vital. And I think that is a component, unfortunately, that is often missing um, in, in that, you know, that is not a working, di that's not a part of the, di the leadership dynamic, like, hey, this is something that I need to, need to do. And, you know, again, this is not just along racial lines, but we see this along you know gender lines we see this huge it's huge generationally you know the baby boomers and the uh, the gen xers we are our worldview is very different than the the gen wires and the um the millennials very very different and so we alienate that group if we don't reach out to them to to bridge that gap and say how can we reach this group because Gen Xers and baby boomers, are, we're not going to understand, we don't understand their worldview. It's very different. And so um, 
you know, I think we have to bridge that gap by saying, hey, come help us. What What is going to be effective in terms of sermons? How do we reach this group? What do we do? And to assume that we, without their help, are going to be able to reach them is just is silly. And we understand that when it comes to, like, generational things. I think a lot easier than we do when we apply that same theory and those same principles to racial issues because it's just much more of a hotbed topic. But... I think principally the same is true. Yeah. And a tidbit on what you just said, Jen, I think the other part is, you know, is is asking them, but then also the other exercise in humility is letting them do. Do you understand what I'm saying? So, you know, you may ask the perspective of we're talking about like that generational difference, but even like you said, we're going to process it where our experience, our limitations, and that's where, again, the humility part comes in. Our limitations may not ever be able to have us produce what they would produce. So whether it be somebody from a non-dominant culture or, um, you know, a man versus a woman, like there are things that Michael and I because of our our gender differences and perspectives and the lens at which we see that we will never, you know, come to the same conclusion. That's where there's strength in having both of us, you know, um, uh, you know, be a part of the discussion. But I appreciate what you said, you know, like um, asking, but then also the other exercise in community is handing over and, you know, giving our blessing, so to speak. And like I said, not that we need to ask anybody like what God is if God has put it on our heart and said hey you know this is what I'm asking you to do you know to do it but at the same time too um, just another um, opportunity for humility there to then let it go and give it over can I, can I just add quickly to that please I think it, because I think this is a real experience like if you're if you actually do get to that point where you're starting to hand the rail the reins over and your what happened? What typically happens is you hand the reins over, but the person, the group that you're handing the reins over to, they they're not as experienced in developing classes in preaching. They're typically a lot of times because they haven't had as many opportunities. Mm-hmm. We had this experience with raising up women for, for teaching. You know, we were trying to, you know, we're doing, we're wor- working to raise up women for the teaching ministry. Well, and we listen to and, and kind of give feedback and evaluate the, the, the offerings that they're putting out there. Uh, we have somebody here in, in Chicago, Matina Montez, who's awesome. She's a great, yeah. a great teacher and, and uh, she's doing a really good job developing her skills. But she has so many less opportunities to, to teach that and so she doesn't have the reps she doesn't have as many mm-hmm. reps and just simple reps and back to the athletic analogy the more opportunities you have to exercise those capabilities the better you're going to get out of it and so i think one of the one of the needs is going to come up is patience as we hand you know as we have these transitions and hand over the reins to certain groups if it's a non-dominant group that wants to engage in worship or engage in teaching or preaching at some level there there may there there may be less experience with that group but we have to just walk with them and be patient as they sort it out and help give them feedback um as they're as they're working to get better so thank you guys um 
all roads lead back to humility. <laughs> Seems like in one way or another. Patience and humility. Uh, what a great episode. I wish that we could go on and on uh, forever. Uh, definitely appreciate uh, all of you, uh, my Krisha, James, Jennifer, for being on today. Thanks for giving us your time. Um, as we come to a close here, James, Jennifer, is there anything you guys want to mention from your ministry? Anything you want to plug or have anybody put a, 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 a pin in their calendar for uh, coming up? Well, probably, you know, one big thing coming up is in uh, 2021, uh, Jennifer and I will do a tour to Israel. Um, and it'll be in May. So, you know, yeah, look out for that. Um, you know, please, please join us. And any, anybody who needs like encouragement or anything like that too, we also have some really great resources on the Chicago church, uh, website at chicagochurch.org for people who are, you know, shut, shut in homes and don't have access to materials. We had an incredible Easter service. Um, it's worth watching again, just because it was a, you felt like you were worshiping with people. Um, and so that, you know, just check that out. There, there's lots of good resources there, but yeah, Israel 2021, look out for announcements about that. That's great. And if I'm listening to this podcast, James, and I hear you say that, and I know you don't have the specific dates and some of the details yet, but if I wanted to check up on that and, and look uh, for that Israel 2021 trip, um, where where could I find uh, information in the future on that? Yeah, we'll we'll put the announcements on the Chicago Church web website, chicagochurch.org. All you right. Just go there and go to this page. We'll you'll, you'll see the uh, announcements about it, and then contact me as well. Okay. Contact James Becknell. You're on Facebook and social media, and I'm on uh, Facebook, Instagram. Um, I'm also on uh, the gram. Contact, I know. I'm, I'm also my contact info is also on the Chicago Church webpage as well, so you can you can reach out to us. Excellent. Us James is on all of it: Snapchat, TikTok. Um, no, he's not. <laughs> he is not. Um, he is a TikTok star. Uh, I, I think your TikTok name is JBZ. Uh, is that correct? <laughs> yes. I, I would pay I would pay large sums of money to see a TikTok dance video hosted by James Becknell. Sounds good. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I would chip in on that. Well, James, Jennifer, my Christian, thanks so much for joining us. Um I, again, uh and, and in fact I hope to we hope to join you guys in Israel in twenty twenty one. So we're uh we'll definitely follow up on that. Uh, this has been All Things to All People podcast, and we uh, thank you for your time and joining us, and we'll see you next time.